Amen. Thanks, Eric. So Elizabeth Elliot, who some of you may know, she, she told this parable about a woman who took her young son to a famous piano concert because he was learning to play the piano and she wanted to encourage him in that. And they found their seats and then she saw a friend a few rows up. And so she went to talk to her friend. Well, of course, the little boy took that as an opportunity to go exploring. And he ended up walking through this door that said no admittance. Then the house lights dimmed and people started to take their seats. She got back to her seat, realized her boy was missing. And right then, the curtains open, spotlight on the piano, and there's her little boy sitting at the piano, banging out twinkle, twinkle, little star, or at least trying to. That's when the maestro came through the door, and he just swiftly moved to the piano, and he stood behind the little boy and whispered in his ear, don't quit, keep playing. And then he put his left hand down and filled in a bass part, then he put his right hand down, played a melody. And together, the old master and the young novice transformed a frightening situation into a wonderfully creative experience. Eliot writes this about that. Whatever our situation in life and history, however outrageous, however desperate, whatever dry spell of the spirit, whatever dark night of the soul, God is whispering deep within our beings, don't quit, keep playing, you are not alone. Together, we will transform the broken patterns into a masterwork of my creative art. Together, we will mesmerize the world in our song of peace. I love that parable. I love her, what she's trying to teach there through that parable. And I think that the story of the woman at the well is, at many levels, this same story, this exact same story. So we've been in The Woman at the Well now for many weeks. I hope you're continuing to read it at home. As you've noticed, each week I add a few more verses of the things we're going to cover, but it's a long story. It's 42 verses, so that's why it's important to keep reading it at home so, so you can just familiarize yourself with it and just keep learning more and more things. This woman has been banging at the keys of life. She's trying to play a song that makes sense, a song that is beautiful, that satisfies, yet all she seems to get is noise and maybe every now and then a familiar melody. But then Christ comes along and he says, don't give up, keep playing. And he helps her do just that. And before he is through, we will see. And if she keeps playing alongside him, her life will become a symphony of beautiful music. So last week when we were together, we saw Jesus tell the woman to go Call your husband and come here. And we talked about that. We explored that and realized it was this, if he was saying, you have received love from me, so now go and bring someone else to receive it too. I am the living water. Bring someone else for a drink. He was teaching her that it is in the going and loving that allows us to realize this spring of water welling up inside of us to eternal life. Remember, we explored this last week. A spring is what? A source. It's a source to drink from. Okay? And then in that beautiful song that the band just played, did, I, did you catch the line, love does not stay locked inside? Love is the river that flows through. 
You know, I think sometimes we get so caught up in just wanting love for ourselves, we forget that, well, love for ourselves is love for others. It's not, it's a spring of life welling up. And so what Jesus is teaching her, guiding her into the mystery of the redemptive process. The mystery that it's about trusting we are loved and then loving. That's the redemptive process. And it also goes the other way. The mystery in the act of loving, we learn to trust we are loved. Our own salvation, our own redemption becomes real to us when we participate in the way of Christ. When we participate in grace, when we participate in mercy, when we participate in forgiveness, in love, then redemption becomes real. Of course, and we, we talked about that a lot last week, and, and it was really, I think, I know for me it was challenging because it's hard to find words to re-understand and rethink through what is God loving us mean? What does redemption mean? What does salvation mean? And I hope you, we will continue to explore this and talk about it. So here's the problem, though. Let's move on to this week. When Jesus tells the woman to go call her husband, it presents her with a huge problem. Well, I have no husband. And here begins for me this beautiful image of a master pianist coming alongside a little child and whispering, don't give up, keep playing, and then helping that child play. But very interesting, and to me very sad, it is this part of the story that is so often understood in a negative light instead. I used to understand it in this negative light that I'm about to talk about. Maybe you've heard this part of the story taught this way. Many commentators insist that Jesus was baiting the woman to purposely expose her sinful lifestyle, to shame her into some sort of remorse, and to scare her into repentance. That is a pretty standard reading of this passage. Yet, I do not think that comes from the text at all. I think that comes from a view that is more founded in an understanding of God as less than full of grace, as less than full of mercy and unconditional love, basically as less than the God of the cross. Consider these facts. Now, I don't have the verses here, but we're going to be looking at them next week. You can find them. There is absolutely no verbal condemnation forthcoming from Christ about her situation, none. There's no lecture on the evils of adultery. There's nothing. Nothing happens here, okay? There are no words of judgment at all, actually, in this entire thing. Furthermore, he compliments her on her honesty right here. What you have said is quite true. Thank you. Then, what we're going to see in the weeks to come, he leads her into a conversation in which she reveals some of the most profound teachings on worship in the entire New Testament, some of the most far-reaching commentary on the source of salvation in all of Scripture, and one of the most spectacular claims to divinity he ever made. If his intent was to expose her for negative purposes, if his intent was to shame her for some superior nod to artificial morality and condemn her as a worthless sinner, I don't think honoring her with such sublime teaching makes sense. Do you? I don't think that falls at all. Right? See, here's what happens, and let's be honest about this, and I think it's important to be honest about this. When it comes to God, 
God. We all bring our personal stories to the God story. We have to be honest about that. Okay? And that's not always a bad thing at all. There's nothing wrong with that. We are all made in the image of God. Our stories are going to help us tell parts of the story of God. So I'm fine with that. The problem is when we're not humble enough to realize that's what we're doing. That's when it all becomes a problem. And so now we know better about God and about Scripture and about on and on and on it goes. No, no, no. We bring our own stories. So people that are reading this text completely without any context there, as I used to read it, are just bringing their own narrative of who God is to the text. Do you see? But when we can be humble and say, okay, God, right now, I, I know I'm bringing myself to this. I'm bringing my opinions. I'm bringing my agenda. I'm bringing theologies that matter to me. And we can be humble about that and say, so help me really see what's going on. Then sometimes we can just read the text and be like, oh, yeah. There is nothing in here that God would, Jesus is possibly doing that to this woman. There's nothing here at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite of what Jesus is doing for this woman. Quite the opposite, okay? I think Jesus loved her, and in that love saw not a woman of shame, not a worthless sinner. He saw a woman he loved. And to use today's image, a child trying to play the piano. A child he came close enough to, to help. So let me make a side note about this whole scripture thing. Because it goes along with the story. It's a beautiful connection. I, I think it, it's beautiful. So everyone knows the story of the burning bush, right? Exodus chapter 3, or most of us do. So Moses, all of a sudden, he's out there doing his sheep thing, and, and, and there's this bush on fire, and it starts talking to him. And we all know the story, most of us, and we read it, and, and you know, he, sends, he sends Moses to Egypt to free the slaves. But have you ever read what God says initially from that burning bush? Okay, let's read this together. Because this is what happens when you, when you hear a story in Sunday school, it gets framed for you in Sunday school, then if you stay in the same denomination, in the same church, that frame never really goes away. It just gets more complex, it gets more fixed, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden, that's the only frame. That's it. There's no other frame to read, right? And so you start to miss things as you get older until you just back away for a little bit. Okay? So, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Sorry, I don't know why those letters are white. They're supposed to be black. That's just my PowerPoint is a mess right now. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. I am concerned about their suffering. Oh, this is God. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This is a massive, massive moment in the history of humanity. Massive. I can't stress enough how big this is. And I have never saw this when I was younger. At this point, and even through to today, when you really think about it, God's cared about the winners. The best people, the strongest 
countries, the strongest empires, the winners were God's people. That's how it was. To this day, most of our theology makes us believe that. Right? Well, of course God loves America because we're the strongest country in the universe. Of course. That's how God's worked then. If you were in captivity, if you were a slave, that's because your gods were weak. Gods don't care about you. So this far back in human history, whenever this was, whenever, who knows when this was, okay? Whenever this was, this is a moment that is mind-blowing. A moment that got buried and a moment that got lost, but even that far back. This is why whenever people want to argue with me, and, and I understand they're arguing, and it's fine, I'm okay with it, because they're wrestling, and we should all be wrestling with God, but, you know, I hate God, or I hate the Old Testament. I just had a great, we had a great dinner recently with someone that's just tr trying to come to terms with what is the Bible, and what is God, and all these bad things, and you know, okay, fine. But there's these things in the Old Testament, too. This is amazing. So think about this. So here it is. This isn't a God, because when Moses said, hey, who are you? He, the, 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 the Jewish terminology there is, I am being Basically, I am being, whatever that is. So don't even try to name me. Don't try to set me up in your little box. Don't try to set me up as just yours. I am being. So when I am being shows up, God, whatever you think God is, that's fine. Whatever it is, if it's very personal to you or just energy, whatever it is, that's okay. At least hear this. I am being is concerned with the loser, the sufferer, the slave, the oppressed, the marginalized, the poor, the sad, the sick, and on and on it goes. How beautiful is that? And so I am being shows up and he says, I am not against the great. Don't get me wrong on this, Moses, but I am for the loser and the sad, and the suffering, and those in pain. So we had to go to Egypt. Now, let's fast forward to our story. Fast forward, but also go back. That's pretty cool. That's like quantum physics. First week of this series, what did we see? Now we had to go through Samaria. Because there was a woman enslaved to men, to her own choices, to circumstances, to the identity she had been given by others, identity she had taken on herself. So you've got to understand something. This whole thing, this whole thing with the husband thing, by law you could get married three times. She got married four times. So th there's a lot of identity she has been given. And the guy she's with now doesn't even love her enough to marry her. And God is for her. Oh, how beautiful is that? Oh. This is grace in action. That's what this is. This is coming alongside and helping us make music instead of noise. Of course, this is exactly where most of us fall back into transactional Christianity. Because we're so afraid of grace, we don't understand grace, we think grace is unfair, right? 
This is why I still, as much as I explore it and we talk about it here, I still spend half my life in transactional Christianity because it's part of my identity, right? We're going to do a side note off of the series soon on, on identity again. We've been talking about this, this story is Jesus breaking down all the identities and showing her the one identity she needs, showing all of us the one identity we need, that, the only identity that matters. But I still go back and forth. So what we do is we change the gospel message into one in which we transact with God, right? We take some heavenly entrance exam, and if we get the right answers to the theological questions, we're saved. We become the Savior, not God, right? And then we make ourselves feel better about this diminished gospel message by creating an angry God. See, a God that would shame this woman. A God that would come and expose this woman's sinfulness just to make a point about morality or ethics or something. And then we dress that God up. We don't really like the idea of an angry God. Well, when God's angry at other people, we like that. We just don't like the idea of an angry God with us, right? But we love it when he's angry at everyone else. And we give him words like righteousness and holiness and sovereignty, and yet we give meanings to those words that the scriptures don't give meanings to those words. We've talked a lot about righteousness in scripture here at Cana, right? Right relationship not the surface ethicalness and morality that we like to give it. And then what happens is we ask these seemingly brilliant questions to prove our point, to defend our transactional Christianity. Maybe you've heard these. I used to ask these. That's why I know them so well. And I still get asked them. If it's all about grace, why would anyone bother trying to be good? If it's all about forgiving... God forgiving us simply because he loves us, how will that make anyone stop being bad? But I've realized the more I've dove into this mystery of grace, those aren't brilliant questions at all. I think they completely missed the point. I think they expose an emptiness to this lesser gospel of transactionalism. You see, to ask such questions reveals this about our faith. It's nothing more than theological head knowledge. Faith is an answer to a question and not a way of life. Right? But, as we saw last week, redemption is a way of life. It's the way. The way. Jesus said, I am the way. Enter my way. Be part of my way. Realize my way is life. Participate in life. Trying to be good to please God Cleaning up the outside with some superficial morality is not what God is after. That's not what God is after. He is after complete change. Complete. Complete transformation. And it's not a demand. It's an invitation. He's inviting us to be completely transformed. What transactionalism fails to understand is that a God of grace properly understood, is more demanding than any other conceivable version of God. So I'm going to let one of my favorite theologians explain what I'm trying to say. This is a long quote, but I think it deserves taking our time and our effort because this is such a big deal. This is the stuff that changes lives. This is the stuff that helps us to live like Christ in the world. Okay? Sin is not something the human race really has any choice about. The occasional sin, small s, we humans might manage to stop. Some of us might possibly avoid this lie or that adultery, but none of us will ever avoid that trust in ourselves 
and that distrust of anyone else that lies at the root of the world's problems. Those twin falsities of faith in self and unfaith in others, let's call that sin with a capital S, are as irremovable by human effort as they are unpardonable by human goodwill. And therefore, if they are ever to be removed or pardoned, it will only be by God's gift, grace. Okay? Let's continue. Faith, you see, is simply taking his word about what really is and trying our best to get all the unreal nonsense out of our lives. Strictly speaking, faith does not save us. God saves us. But because faith, once given, inexorably leads us to try to stop contradicting what he has done, it becomes the only instrument of salvation that we need to lay a hand to. Oh, I love that. And it goes with this metaphor today of playing the piano, right? Just find that instrument. Find that instrument. So a better question is, if Christ has done it all for me already, it is finished. It's biblical. For those that are, that are thinking through this here. And, and you should be thinking through it. This is paradigm shifting. This is challenging. This is scary. If Christ has done it for me already, why shouldn't I live as if I trusted him? I love that. If he has made me a member of the wedding of the Lamb, why shouldn't I act as if I'm at the party? If he has already reconciled my wayward self and my equally difficult brother-in-law or children or wife, why shouldn't I at least try to act as if I trust him to have done just that and let his reconciliation govern my actions and those relationships? Oh. Oh. But see, see why we reduce this gospel to something much less. Because just tell me, David, what prayer to say or what theology to believe, and I'll go to heaven and I'm done. Instead of letting this invitation to life overwhelm our fears, letting go of our fears, and stepping into real grace and real relationship. He goes on. Since he has already made me new, since there really isn't any of the old me around to get in my way anymore, why should I be so stupid as to try to go on living in terms of something that isn't even there? Yes, grace is demanding. If we really believe in grace, we should be trying to live grace. The outrage of law violated is nothing compared to the white-hot fury of grace spurned. So let me give you an example of white-hot fury of grace spurned because then you can, you can slide back into transactionalism if you're not careful. If we reject grace, it's not that God gets all worked up about it. God doesn't get worked up about much. That's his whole point. He loves us, right? He wants us just to live. So someone hurts us, okay? Little hurt, big hurt, doesn't matter. Depending on where we're at and living into the spirit or not, we react to that hurt, right? Because we're human, so we have an initial reaction to that hurt. Totally normal. Then we have a choice. We can feed that hurt, or we can do everything we can to let go of our fear and slide into grace. So if you're like me, and you're a hard learner, and your fear is so big, you tend to just feed the hurt, right? And so you think of, instead of grace, you think of righteousness, justice, 
And you have all these reasons, all of them, for not forgiving that hurt that was done to you, minor or major. And then, how do you feel? Horrible, right? Because you want something rectified so badly, you have fed that hurt so much, and all of a sudden, you're just dying inside. There's the white-hot fury of grace spurned. That's all that is. In the name of fairness, in the name of what's right, whatever it is. Listen, when someone hurts you, it's bad. I get it. Okay. But why keep hurting ourselves? Why keep running away from the demands of grace? this invitation into life the way it was made to be lived. Life is here. It's all around us. It's beautiful. See, these illegitimate questions about if it's all about grace, why would anyone be good? I I think they're nonsense. I think it's like asking how many angels can stand on the head of a pen. What's the point? Who cares? Because to understand grace, to receive grace, to receive grace is to know that, wow, we're very good. Remember when God finished creating and he said it's very good? This is what he's inviting us back to, into, to be part of. And so then what happens is, We don't try to live this way for an identity. We don't try to do these things to please God. We do these things because we know their life. That's why. You know, there's certain things we all do that we are convinced is good for us. And that's why we do them, right? Like Becca's been struggling with this ongoing health thing and has found certain things that you eat, right? That you know are good for you. There are times you'd rather eat something else. But you do that because you know it's good for you. You're not doing it for any other reason. This is how grace works. If we could make that paradigm shift from what religion told us, that we have to do these things because that's what God demands, to simply understanding, oh my gosh, this is life. This is going to be beautiful and wonderful. It will happen. It will. It will. The white-hot fury's focus is our redemption. Living into the very good that God called creation. And so it never stops pursuing us. It never stops being the master pianist trying to help us make a symphony of our life. That's what grace does. It's always there. Jesus did not scold this woman. He did not shame her. He did not condemn her. He did not give her a lecture on the evils of adultery. He was there to free her to help her realize she does not have to live this life that hurts and degrades and oppresses. She does not have to come alone anymore to the well at midday. She can be free of all of that. She can live forgiven in the identity as a beloved of God. So he just complimented her on her honesty and kept pursuing her. This revelation of her innermost story that he brought her to and I do believe he brought her there, but why did he bring her there? Was simply 
not towards shame and death, but towards forgiveness and life. He has offered her living water, right? And she claims she wants it. Here's living water, and she claims to want it. But she's not yet fully understood why she wants it. Or what it is she wants exactly. Like many of us, right? So here, Jesus gently helps her acknowledge those wells she has been going to and says, hey, this is why you need my water. Those wells aren't working for you. So I've said this the last few weeks lately, and I've said it a lot this year. If you're doing faith one way and it's not working, why do you keep doing it? Why? Because it's right? <laughs> okay, be all worked up and be right. But if it's not helping you love your enemies and not helping you not be afraid of death and not helping you just live in reconciliation with each other, what's the point of it? There is no entrance exam to heaven. There's entrance exams to churches, not to heaven. Jesus does not care about sin, small s. And in this woman's case, he doesn't care whether or not she is married to the guy she is living with. What he cares about is sin, capital S, that is killing her. Her own sin, the trusting herself, the preserving herself, the fear, we all have that. And the sin of others, the manipulation, the abuse, the taking advantage of, the ostracizing that is going on in her life. He knows that if he can get her to see, he even pardons all of that. He knows if he can get her to just trust him, that it's all done. Then he knows all the little S sins will take care of themselves eventually. Because as we move into grace, we naturally move further and further away from all those things that hurt us. He is always concerned with the big story. Only we humans running away from grace are concerned with the little story. We're the ones that get all worked up. God's just like, whoa, whoa. Let's deal with the real issue. Just stop trusting yourself and trust me. Enter into life. All that other stuff will take care of itself. If he can get her to just stop banging on the keys of life for a little bit and hear the melody he is playing at her side, then maybe she will start to play alongside his leading. If we will stop banging on the keys of life, even the good keys, if we just stop banging for a while, if we stop going to these wells that never satisfy, these wells we know are killing us. If we just stop trusting ourselves, I think the same will be true for us. And here's the best part. Please hear this. No matter how badly we're doing this thing called life, or how badly life 